Texas talking. Oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking. Ah, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking. Tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are in Texas guys Hi, this is Texas State Representative Trey Martinez Fisher, and I raise a point of order on this podcast under Rule 1, Section 1, that it is entirely boring. Just kidding. Welcome to the show, and now here's your host, Ross Ramsey. Thank you. This is Ross Ramsey. I'm here with the first shaky podcast of 2016, sitting in place of Emily Ramshaw, who's going to look over my shoulder until, I guess, this could happen any second now. Um, <laughs> Emily Ramshaw, our editor, is here. It's true. I'm here. I'm waiting to have a baby, but I am watching Ross's every move. If your water breaks, just have it break in the other direction. We'll use sound effects if that happens. <laughs> that disquieting voice is, is our editor-in-chief and CEO, Evan Smith. Disquieting is about the nicest Water breaks attached. is intro. That's how you start the new year. <laughs> Look, oh, yeah, the water break. I, I honestly thought she was going to be gone by now. And we're joined by reporter Alexa Ura, who's the only normal person in the room. Hello. <laughs> What about, what about our yeah, producer you keep, Todd? You keep saying that. <laughs> our producer Todd is here. He's he's pretty normal. Um, right. And speaking of normal. So starting uh, 2016, uh, you had a story, Alexa, on women in the legislature and the prospects for putting more in the legislature at the end of the primaries in eight weeks. Being pretty much non-existent. So what's the scoop? So among the 333 legislative candidates that filed for office, only 76 of them are women. It's about 22 percent, which is actually higher than the share of women at the legislature already, which is about 19 percent. So basically, the 2016 elections will do very little to change what is a huge underrepresentation of women in the legislature. And when you consider the fact that the population of the state is more than half women, correct? the legislature does not look like Texas. Not at all. How much of this is because women are smart enough to know that this is really just a that crappy job? Sucks. Don't do it. <laughs> if I want a, six, if I want a $600 a month job that sucks, I can find one not in the Capitol, right? Uh, well, you know, I talked to both lawmakers and political consultants and observers and what have not, and they said it's sort of a combination of poor recruitment, sort of a longstanding inequality in politics in general, um, and a legislative map that benefits incumbents, most of whom are obviously men. So when you have men in office and the map helps men in office, then what you end up with is... Men in office. Men in office. Well, wait a minute. How does the map help men in office? Because if maps help incumbents... Well, okay. And then and and, and the incumbents in, are men yeah. in office, then what you end up with next time is largely men in office. It's so, hard for any challenger, and that would include women, to dislodge incumbents who but don't even, wish to be dislodged. But even the challengers are often not women. I don't. I mean, there's something... They're just of, not recruiting. Yeah, there's right. a much bigger institutional issue. And as the only one in the room who's preparing to be a mother, I mean, how many... Right. How, oh, the dude. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. You're part of the problem. I mean, how many women are there with young kids serving in the legislature? Virtually none. Lois Kolkhorst has kid, younger kids. Who I else? Don Howards are grown. Zaffarini's are grown. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's I part, go down the list, right? That's part of the problem, too, that they, you know, and you have some parties that might, one party that might be doing more outreach among a certain group of women. But then you also have women who are more likely, the, what political observers say is that women are more likely to run if they're asked to run. They're not, they're not bound to say, I want to do this. Well, let's also talk about the institutional problem that we have here, which is not just limited to the legislature. Right now, the Republican Party has a stranglehold on the leadership of the state, of, of the power structure in the state. 
you can say it's a good stranglehold or a bad stranglehold, depending upon which party you personally belong to, but it is a stranglehold nonetheless. There is a, a, a total of one consequential woman at the statewide level. Now, there are, there are right. judges and all there that judges, piece. Right. Mm-hmm. But Christy Craddock yeah, is pretty much— all you inconsequential judges call Evan Smith. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sharon Keller, here's my phone number. But honestly, it is Christy Craddock and then, you know, and that's it. And uh, it used to be Susan Combs and Christy Craddock, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And the farm team for Republican statewide candidates is not exactly full of women really either. Um, and the Democratic Party doesn't exist. And so basically that's it. Well, let me gently ask this question. So what? What's What difference would it make? Well, and, you know, it, it kind of depends on who you ask because – there are some people who say, well, it doesn't, you know, there's no difference in the way men and women govern. Other folks say, well, we need more. We, her head. <laughs> <laughs> Cross well, her arm, shake well, her head. I'm not, I didn't say that. <laughs> people told that to me. But I think at the end of the day, even though those answers kind of vary depending on who you ask, sometimes along partisan lines, at the end of the day, the, the point was that if you don't have women in an office, it's much harder to recruit more women in I, office. I would say the cuts we've seen over the years that I've covered the legislature to social services, um, you know, I'm sure this may be me just making a sweeping judgment call, but I think you would have seen fewer of them with more women in office. So you're a believer in the mommy party. Or, the, or, or mommies in either party uh, having I'm, a different perspective than the daddies do. I'm a believer in the empathy party. Uh, and I'm going to go out on a limb. And I think, you know, when there are more women in office, you see greater empathy. You see fewer fights. Um, I mean, I do think that there's a lot of I, truly. No, no, I think this is I just keep 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 going. I mean, I think there's a lot. I think there's actually research and back theory. So the backsplash lands all on you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I'm comfortable going out there. And I think, you know, as far as education is concerned, education funding is concerned. You see far more, you know, women who are teachers. You see far more women who work, you know, who are nurses, for example. I mean, I think there are industries that are heavily pop- populated by women where you bring those types of women into the legislature and they make different decisions, different judgment calls. But how much of that's gender and how much of that's politics? I mean, plenty of conservative mm-hmm. women have voted for those cuts. And well, I was about to say, Susan probably... King is a nurse, surgical right. nurse. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, oh, look at Donna her. Donna Howard is a, is a nurse by training. Uh, they're both women. Susan King has broken Susan with King, her party on a lot yeah, but of Susan women's King health votes issues. Very differently, but Susan King votes very differently than Donna Howard. She, she votes more conservatively than, for instance, Sarah Davis, right? But I, 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 Donna Campbell's a doctor. I don't see Donna Campbell doing the Donna Howard on the, on any health care issues. Right. Right. So, I mean, I think a lot of it is driven by party, obviously. But I do think, you know, with a bigger critical mass of women in the legislature, you see different policy priorities. The, the challenge is, I think, you know, again, being in the legislature is a pretty thankless job. And so if you are, you know, a mom and you have young kids at home, I mean, most of the women in the legislature – it seems to me, if I'm correct, are, you know, either women whose kids are grown or they don't have kids. You know, it seems this seems like a particularly difficult and obviously this is hard for men and women alike. But I think it's particularly difficult for women with young kids well, to women leave are mostly home, the primary caregivers. Right. I mean, to leave are. home for, for at a minimum of six months but, every other year. But go year. back to the question of the statewide office holders. I mean, if you mm-hmm. accept the fact that the being in the legislature is a, is a shitty job with shitty pay. Mm-hmm. Being a statewide and a great pension, I should point out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> being a statewide elected official is all that, or something more like that. And now you don't have to live in Austin, so it may even be all or that. Mm-hmm. There are still very few candidates who are women running for those offices. Wendy Davis was an obvious exception in the last cycle, but on the Republican side, where which controls everything, you had Christy Craddock. 
Mm-hmm. You had right. no, you had nothing else. But right. you know, when you you mentioned sort of the party politics and whether that plays a bigger role, and it reminds me of at the end of the legislative session when they there was this big fight over this abortion bill that would have banned coverage of abortion on some health care plans, and the bill ended up not making it ended up on the floor. It ended up getting on the calendar, but there was this big fight, and part of it was that the women on the state affairs committee actually voted against it, and it was Republican women, and everyone was kind of shocked that they had voted against it and had sort of de. Temporarily in the House, House, and they had temporarily derailed it. And you know, they asked Byron Cook, who's the chair of the committee, what happened. And he said, "Well, you know, I think I guess the women were tired of us telling them what to do." <laughs> and it, but it was it was such it was this moment in which everyone was so surprised that you had these Republican women voting against this bill. And it was it was this weird moment where you wondered whether you know their person whether their beliefs as women were sort of different than their political. It was a very interesting moment. Byron Cook in a sudden moment of alacrity. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he's a, he's a good transition to the elections. You know, we've got eight weeks from yesterday until the primary on March 1st. The early voting starts on a Tuesday this year because it's after President's Day. I think it's the 16th of February. We're going to be voting in a minute. Byron Cook is one of the targets of the people who'd like to knock out the establishment in the House along with, you know, people like Vialba and Guerin and, and Strauss himself on the other side. Right, although different people have different levels of challenge. Right, you know, Cook right. may be at DEFCON 1, Vialba may be more at like DEFCON 4. Well, right, right. Uh, it depends on, you know, what, you know, one of the things we'll see on the 15th of January is the campaign finance numbers for the period that ended December 31st, and we'll know how big an armory everybody comes into this election with. But, you know, the elections are underway. Byron Cook's one of the people... Um, in the targets, what do you see here? You know, what's what, what I see here is that the definition of conservative is different than it used to be. Um, you know, you look at Byron King, Byron Cook seems to be based on whoever's saying it. It's right. different. You look at Byron. Person. You look at Byron Cook's record. You look at Charlie Guerin's record. You look at Jason Vialba's record. If you stand back from it, you would not mistake any of those people for liberals. But this is all in relative terms, and the challenge that they face in each case in the primary is from essentially the right end of the right end of the right end of, of the party. And it's an attempt bit by bit by bit to try to take over not just those seats, but leadership of the House. They think right. if they can grow their numbers, grassroots conservatives, if you can elect more Matt Rinaldi's and Tony Tinderholtz and Jonathan Sticklands, assuming that each of those guys returns. Well, that's interesting because those guys because are targets are all of the right. establishment in the But if, House, if those right. guys return and you can elect more Rinaldi's and Sticklands and Tinderholtz, the theory goes, we can then uh, rig the math on the speaker's race so that we can get one of our guys in there and we can align more closely with the grassroots agenda coming out of the Senate and you know, Katie bar the door. Uh, the fact is that the voters back home are less interested in the Austin version of this conversation. You know, what I've just articulated is right. really a conversation that we've said many times is happening in one block between the Austin Club and the Starbucks attending Congress. It's inside right. the bubble. Do the people in Corsicana give a crap about the intra-party fight? Do the people in Vialba's district care? Do the people in Fort Worth and Guerin's district necessarily care? It's one thing when you have a Keffer or a Crownover retire and the menu of alternatives without an incumbent is presented and people say, I'm the most conservative person in the race right. and maybe people at that point gravitate to. But it's hard. To, it comes back to what Alexa was talking about with regard to the map. It's hard to dislodge an incumbent for a whole bunch of reasons in Texas. And so you cannot go into this election season assuming that any of the incumbents, Guerin, Fialba, um, Cook, Strauss, right. 
and for that matter, Rinaldi, Tinderholt, Stickland are at Molly risk. White, right. They have to be assumed to be the favorites. Well, the two We're more you, likely to have no change than change. But the two that you mentioned, Jim Keffer from Eastland and Myra, Myra Brown from, 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 Den- from Denton, were both certain to draw opponents of the same kind that Garen got, that Cook got, that, you right. know, I mean, yeah, they were, yeah, on the, they were di- also on the, the target The list. difference is that the people who hate those guys claim victory when they retire. When I might say right. they retired because they looked at the legislature and the way that the politics of it's the like, legislature has this. changed, and they say, so done with this. Right, rather mm-hmm. have a Why would I do this? Right. 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 What role will the presidential primaries play in this? Because you'll have a different set of primary voters just because the field is so big, won't you? It's yeah, it's this is like a classic political science experiment. Is the is the if you get a bigger electorate and we almost certainly will get a bigger electorate just because we've got a competitive race. Are the people who show up who don't ordinarily show up more or less or exactly the same kinds of conservatives as the people who've been showing up? Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. I think there's more establishment that is my bet on Interesting. This. I was going to say the opposite. I actually think that if Cruz and Trump are 1-2 one, or 2-1 heading into the Texas primary, those voters are probably more Stickland, Tinderholt, Rinaldi, Molly White voters than they are Cook, Garen, Vialba. I don't know. I think the Rinaldi, Stickland, Molly White voters are, you know, every time we talk about one of these primaries where they're, it's not a super competitive time, there's no big, you know, national election, it brings out the farthest of the right. It just brings out, you know, sort of like the handful, the smallest portion of voters. I don't know. I feel like when you have something that is as big and as newsworthy as a presidential cycle, it brings out a much bigger base of Republican voters. Yeah, I guess, you know, I'm sort of in the middle between you two. I I don't know if November Republicans, the people who only vote in November, are that much different from March Republicans other Mm -hmm. than they're less active. But when you have personalities like Cruz and Trump at the top of the ticket— Instead of you know more moderate personalities, you know if if it was John Kasich right. and mm-hmm. you know well let's Chris Christie so let's instead. acknowledge this. Rinaldi is a Cruz guy. Stickland I don't think is endorsed, but Stickland is probably more of a Cruz Rand Paul sort of libertarian conservative type guy. Well, he has your phone number. He can Stickland. Yeah, he can. Let oh, well, he's not going right. to be mad at me about this. I mean, I've, I've said ten things about him already. That he'd be madder about than just that. Um, uh, <laughs> Stra- Strauss is a <laughs> Strauss is a Bush guy. Vialba is a, is a Rubio guy, whether officially or unofficially. Right. If the Rubios and Bushes of the world were at the top of the polls in the primary, then the mainstream conservatives would be very, very happy heading into the primary. My suspicion is that the people we've mentioned, Cook, Garen. Vialba, Strauss, et cetera, et cetera, while they may not ultimately be at risk, would much prefer a different set of circumstances heading into the primary than what we're probably looking at. I still think those people are going to show up to vote, though, even if they're not happy with the two people who are leading in the polls. I mean, yeah. maybe that's even more incentive for right. them to make sure that the outcome in Texas doesn't, you know. I do think there's an interesting thing at play here that we're going to test in the Strauss case, but not only in the Strauss case, and that is that the grassroots conservatives think they've figured out a way to make it so that a hard-to-beat incumbent is beat or beatable, and that is by packing the primary with multiple challengers right. and then mm-hmm. forcing that person into a runoff when no one's paying attention and the turnout is much lower and you so could possibly into the small snatch group of voters Emily's talking and you about. could snatch right. it. I think that may be too clever. I don't think Joe Strauss, in the case of the Strauss race, is just anybody. If you put if you put a speaker That's of tough. the Texas House into a runoff, he or she is in deep, deep trouble. So you actually think that if they're if able they get to make him this into work, a, if so they, what's your what's if, your read on this? Well, theory? I don't think he's I don't think they're going to get him into a runoff. Yeah. But if they get him into a runoff, that's he's in deep stuff. I mean, because everybody's focus is going to be on that's all we're going to be talking about. Presidential race will be over. There's no runoff in that race. 
And, you know, the rest of the ballots kind of, you know, if you're mm-hmm. a, if you're here for Fight Club, this is kind of a weak ballot. If and, we're sitting and, and, here. But if you're sitting yeah. here looking at a runoff in May in a speak in a with a sitting speaker right. who got pushed into a runoff in his own district. But, I, I think but look at his, but, but his district is not going to put him into a runoff, is it? No, no. But what I'm saying is if you get him in a runoff, that's gigantic. So who is the establishment Republican in the legislature who's most at risk? And who is the sort of far right Republican in the House? I think Cook's the one who's most at risk. I think it's risk. Cook and Stickland. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder about Stickland being at risk, honestly. I wonder. You know, he's running against uh, Scott Fisher, who's a pastor. I, I don't remember the name of the of the church. Rick Perry Nazarene has endorsed uh, Scott Fisher. Right. Fisher. Scott Fisher has been an appointee of Rick Perry's in the past, and he's one of the Criminal guys. Justice, he, he's TJ one of the guys JP. who's been helpful to uh, Perry, and I believe uh, I might need correction here, but I believe uh, Bush before him with um, getting you know, religious Republicans to the polls, and um, you know Perry has an old friendship with him. You know. It's not really about Stickland, Perry says. Well, Roundtop's not in that district, and Perry doesn't necessarily turn out any votes. Oh, I don't. I think that's not Who does Perry Perry turn out? I think people still care what the longest-serving Texas governor thinks about electoral No disrespect to Governor Perry, but I don't think anybody gives a crap. I mean, do endorsements— Yeah, that's a pretty big endorsement. Yeah, I think I mean, that's a. I think that's a very big endorsement. Has he played anywhere? Have you seen Rick Perry wading into any other legislative race? Yeah, Brian Hughes for Senate. Yeah, but that's not a surprise. Don Buckingham for Senate. Yeah, he's not endorsing against incumbents there. This is endorsing against an incumbent. It's it's, it's an interesting thing. I don't, in know a, that in, any, I don't know that it moves a needle. In I the mean, biggest Republican county in the state. You know, Tarrant County is the most blah. solidly. <laughs> I think Julie McCarty and actually Evan labeling like Scott it. Fisher the <laughs> pastor of disaster and, and ginning up her whole outrage machine in Tarrant County I think actually has more of an effect in Stickland's favor than Perry endorsing Scott Fisher does in Scott Fisher's. Favor. Well, here's another thing with that big turnout. If you you know let's let's say that the turnout in the Republican primary goes up, but it's exactly the same kind of voter. There's a bunch of voters here who don't ordinarily vote in primaries. They're low information voters. They don't know these guys. They're not the people who showed up last time to put Stickland here to put right. this one here, that one here. And you hit them with a bunch of brand new information about these guys, and all of a sudden they're reintroducing themselves in a way that they didn't have to in previous elections. So Stickland has to come into this, and the first thing Scott Fisher does is, you know... Pop him on smoking pop, weed. Pop him on smoking... Smoking smoking the green. Smoking the green. green. Now, the D. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that one goes by. I think, you know, he's, he was 17 years old. He was yeah. writing on a, on a computer board and looking for... He was between... Uh, you know. Well, first of all, he did it between the ages of, like, 17 and 24. It wasn't like this just happened one time. Right. Anyway, I don't have much problem with smoking the green. <laughs> but, <laughs> however... <Right. laughs> Emily Ramshaw, advocate. I don't even know what to do with that. <laughs> well, I just don't. You know, it's it's one of those things that is probably oh not acceptable to everybody. Emily Gramshaw more over acceptable here. than it was a few years ago. That's, that's not work, the Todd? outrage that no, it would okay. have been 10 years ago. The rape and marriage comment, I think, is going to haunt him. And I that's think it's going to be one. a real problem with Republican women. Right. And it's probably no surprise to you that that's the one that really gets me. Well, but that's that's his problem. And if and if you're a, a voter who hasn't been voting in Republican primaries in that district, and this is your introduction, 
oh, this is the pastor over here, and this is that guy who told that, who said that thing. It's also an old line. It's from 2008, also on a computer board. It's like, don't type at night. You know, you know? what I thought about that old thing? Put down the wine. Reading Stop your, that. Reading your column. 2008 was not that long <laughs> ago. Reading your column today for the first time in a long time. <laughs> well, it's the first time oh. this column's been published. Okay. Then I'm, then I'm, I'm clear. Catch up the hook. Yeah. The thing that I rem- 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 am reminded about the whole smoke to green stickling thing is the news coming out of that whole thing was that when he defended himself, he voluntarily compared himself to Jeb Bush. That may be harder to thought, explain in that district than smoke to green. I thought it was hilarious that he said, like Jeb Bush and Ted Cruz before me, I have in I fact smoked, smoked marijuana. I didn't remember like, the Ted Cruz smoked weed. They, uh, you oh, know. they've all smoked weed. <laughs> it was an Really? Idiot. Really? Rick Santorum? You think so? Mike Huckabee? I gotta wonder about anybody right. in that generation. Right. Let's go. Carly this Fiorina. Is, this is, no, this is the Bill. Clinton <laughs> you think Carly Fiorina smoked weed? Actually, has she? I don't know. And you know, they, they've got the family so. thing with you know drug abuse and Ben I, Carson. Actually, he yeah, acts he, all the time. I, he acts all, yeah. he acts all the time Everybody like he smoked exactly like an enormous <laughs> bag of weed. Actually, no, I mean, but if you go down the Too list, Trump, Trump smoked that. weed. Donald most, Trump. Don't you think most people in our country have smoked weed? Donald Trump has definitely smoked weed. No, he hasn't. Yes, he, no, he, he hasn't. Doug Green. Pinky bet on whether whether actually, Donald Trump I mean, make, Donald make Trump, America weed well, again. Was, I don't actually think that's the case. Trump New York Times story this week. Trump doesn't even drink. Trump doesn't even drink. Which yeah, his brother Fred Jr. You can't explain why. Did he pass away? He passed away, didn't he? He passed away. He was he struggled uh, with addiction. Apparently had trouble with addictions and and all kinds of things. And right. and Trump said in the New York Times story that's one of the reasons why I never drank. Do you think Bernie Sanders smoked weed? Cigarettes. Oh, sure. Oh, my God. Okay, <laughs> but let's move away. The pot like, thing is really... That's how he lost his comb. O'Malley? The pot thing is really not a deal. That's when his shirt came off. I mean, in, in his 20s, Stickland said that there's no such thing as rape in marriage. Was it in his 20s? Yeah, it was yeah. 2008. 2008. He's 32 what now. What is he now? He's 32. He's only 32? He's only 32. God, his beard looks older than 32. Yeah. Well, his he's beard only may 30. be older than Is he 32. only 32? He's 32. Oh, my God. Um, You're surrounded by children, Evan. I'm so old. <laughs> uh, let me mention so, on the podcast for the first time. This but is my, my 50th point, birthday. My point year. is, if you already know Stickland and you've been around him, you know him saying something, him blurting something, and you're going, "Oh man, I wish I wouldn't have said that." Um, is not really that surprising. If you are new to Stickland, like some of these voters might be, um, it's like, "Holy cow!" We start there. That's that's the introduction. But but and that's even, what Fisher's trying to do. Even if you're used to it, though, it's a different kind of comment when you're talking about marital right. rape and take what you no, quote that's, here, there's take no what you question. Want. There's right. no question that that's a different right. comment. What about the idea that Stickland is putting out there that there is such a thing in Christianity? And in faith-based politics, called redemption. Redemption and some, forgiveness that are somehow that 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 if you believe that people grow and they find Jesus and they are redeemed for their past sins, that Stickland should be forgiven his. What did a, a, a George W. Bush, a younger and wilder days, right? I, I, I was lost and now I'm found. But this is politics, not church. But, well, but well, it, did, <laughs> it didn't hurt. It didn't hurt George Bush. People love right? redemption stories. He He's was, right. And he was talking about wilder days, not marital rape. Yeah, the, he, yeah. Well, he was talking about it was drinking. Right. right. Uh, peace on that. I agree. Yeah, he's. You know, I mean, you, you know, your boat capsizes. You grab what floats. I'm going to grab redemption. <laughs> right. And and you know, redemption. You think Stickland's capsized. I think he's. Yeah. I think you know. Yeah. He may get back in the boat, and you know, you have upsets like this and overcome them, and that's fine. But this Can Todd is, animate this whole narrative of Stickland capsizing and then is, getting in the boat. Yeah. Maybe so. I yeah. mean, th- this. You know, yeah. the like I said, the the pot comment probably doesn't cost him anything. The rape comment is very problematic. 
hugely problematic, I think. And the redemption story doesn't, you know, I mean, you can use redemption anytime you want, but it's often, you know, used against your opponents. I mean, it's not like the redemption line works traditionally. One of his lines was, all of my transgressions, this was about the pot line, my transgressions are forgiven. It's like, really? You got to, did you get a certificate? (laughs) 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 It was that former fetus sign that ended up on his door. You you certainly better, better hope so. You know, the, the, the other half of that column was Sid Miller, who seems to be building a reputation for this and for saying wild things, for saying and doing things that are like you know out there, explosive. Yeah, mm-hmm. and maybe building himself you know a defense system when he runs again. You know, oh, which that's is, which Sid is says what? those kinds of things. You oh, know? that's just Sid. Well, you know, right. you can you can say things in politics that are seemingly crazy if they're not out of character. And Donald, you, Donald Trump has proven that this cycle. Right. right. And when you, right. you know, Clady Williams is an old example. Donald Trump's a new example. Sid Miller may be the next example. Where you, you know, where you get in trouble in politics is when you say something where somebody goes, wait, that doesn't fit with the personality that I was dealing with. You know, I can't believe mm-hmm. he, she, or it said that. Um, Sid Miller seems to be, you know, oh, he, oh, that's Sid. He says stuff like that. Uh, we'll see if it works. Um, I don't know. I mean, when Rick Perry was on the presidential trail in 2012, you know, he said people didn't have compassion or didn't have hearts. And suddenly that was the nail in the coffin. um, Yeah, because that wasn't what Perry was supposed to be saying. You know, it was out of character. Well, what what he wasn't supposed to be saying to that audience. Right. 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 That audience was like, what? So what do you think about this 90 (laughs) days of Cruz? We're to the presidential election. Cruz is, you know, the guy who was talking about a brokered convention, the first one since the early 50s, I guess 1952. They're not going to be a brokered convention. I know, but Ted Cruz was talking about it, and now he's telling his supporters, "We're going to have the 90 days of Cruz. We're going to, you know, here's the 90-day path to victory." Election's going to be over after we're March. We're going to have it locked up. Is this yeah. right? I mean, how's this work, Mr. Math over there, Mr. Mr. Map in his head? Um, it's possible that it happens. You know, the last couple of Iowa caucus winners were named Santorum and Huckabee. Had that work out for them, not well. The fact that Cruz may win Iowa is not itself dispositive in terms of the end of this race. I think the question is, what happens after that? If Cruz gains momentum and then wins New Hampshire and is already strongly positioned in a conservative state like South Carolina, yeah, it's possible that he's the guy. But, you know, we haven't seen a massive attack on Cruz yet by all the other campaigns. I don't think Donald Trump calling calling Ted Cruz a hoser like Bob and Doug McKenzie is (laughs) enough. That's not exactly enough of a of an argument line. Um, Boy, Donald Trump really sticks with the birther lines. I mean, you know what I think is interesting? Let me let me stay. Let me stay, stay on this question of Cruz for a second. There's this emerging line of, of, of discussion. There was a story just yesterday or today about this, that the Republican establishment is shitting a brick over the prospect of Trump and Cruz being their nominees, but potentially being the nominee, and saying, oh, my God, if this happens, we could lose governor's races, we could lose legislative races, we could lose this, we could lose that. I tried to get Karl Rove to talk about this when he was with us last month, and he was kind of— Started whistling. Didn't really want to do it. Right. I actually think that there is a much greater chance of the Republican Party coming to pieces if Trump is the nominee oh, than if Cruz is the nominee. They're going to be fine. Yeah. I think Cruz people are nominee. completely overstating the degree to which Cruz as the nominee is this destructive force. I don't even know that Cruz loses the election necessarily if Cruz is the nominee. I think this. I think this, the, the, the challenge for not just Cruz but any Republican is the electoral math, mm-hmm. th, which right. is itself a factor of the electoral map p, right? Math and map. The Democrats have won 18 states in Washington, D.C. every election since 1992, and it adds up to 242 electoral votes. So any Republican nominee who shows up as the nominee in the fall 
first thing that that person has to do is start peeling off states. Well, first the you Democrats have, the, have won since '92. First, you got to hold all the red states, and and then you, you got to right. peel off. And some of the states that are not in that 18 in D.C. are heavily Hispanic states, like New Mexico, Colorado, and Nevada. Right. Ohio's not in that 242. Florida is not in that 242. I understand that there is there is a, a pushback against this that that math is not legitimate. But until somebody can present to me. A state that Obama won the last two elections that any Republican candidate can credibly say I can win, not just like pie in the sky stuff. I don't know that Cruz is any worse positioned than anybody else. And I think that Cruz is actually – Cruz has proven himself to be a remarkably adept national candidate for the first time out of the gate. He really has. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think Trump is a Trump is an enormous risk for them. I don't think I I think they don't like Cruz, but I don't think Cruz presents the same risk for them. Right. Right. In other words, I, I believe that there are not figures in the Republican Party who are going, if Cruz is the nominee, I'll vote for Hillary. Oh, of course Where there no, are tons of people who've said, if Trump is the nominee, I'll vote for Hillary. Three clothespins on my nose in case two fall off. Well, and I think <laughs> right? having, I think also having Cruz as the nominee brings out some of those Tea Party more conservative voters that say, well, heck no, we're not going to lose this to a Hillary. And that actually helps down-ballot races when right. you have these folks turning yeah, out. The, the general election is a completely different election. You know, I, I, you know, when the Republicans settle on somebody and the Democrats, you know, nominate, it, you know, presumably, Clinton, right, you know, it's going to be whoever versus Hillary, and that's a completely different race than this is. But does, does Cruz lock this up in 90 days, or does this, you, you don't think it, this is, is better, But one second, go back to what you just said. Is it better for Hillary to have a Republican nominee as the choice, or is it worse for her? To it's better for Cruz? It's better for her it's to have better. a name. It's yeah, because yeah. I, I think that right yeah. now we're in the if re- we're in the referendum stage of the election where the whole discussion about Hillary is Hillary versus not Hillary, and there are a lot of people who don't necessarily like her or don't necessarily trust her and are going, right. eh. But when it's Hillary versus an actual Republican nominee and it's a choice phase right. as opposed right. to a referendum phase, and they're right. going, okay, we don't love her, but the choice is they want to defund Planned Parenthood, she doesn't, or she wants to do X and they want to do Y, or whatever. When it becomes a choice, an actual binary, that probably does help. Her. I think right? she wants a Trump, and then after a Trump, she wants a she Cruz. wants a Cruz, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, Rick, and what she doesn't Rick, want is a Rubio, probably. Right. She doesn't want a Jeb Bush, but I think all of the Jeb Bush that she doesn't I, want I was the know. old Jeb Bush. Yeah, right. The, the current Jeb Bush, maybe she would think, yeah, I can be. I think, she, I, yeah. I think Rubio is the biggest threat to her of all, I mean, by far. And he's in yeah. Texas this week, right? If you look yes, at if is. you look at polling, like Rick Perry's polling in the University of Texas Texas Tribune poll was always your favorables are a little bit below your unfavorables. Yeah. So Rick Perry versus anybody. Was always well. Let me see who the anybody is, and that that did pretty well. And then when you named them, Perry kept winning those elections. So mm-hmm. you know, I think that's pretty standard math. And that brings me successfully to the close. Hey, of you did thing. okay. I, you, know, you didn't break. Got it. away alive, and maybe Emily will be here next week. Thank and, God and, you were nice and, to Alexa. Let's, let's really, really angry if she is, probably right. <laughs> I better not be here next week. If you have questions or comments, please email them to tribcast at texastribune.org. By the way, the intro next week is one that I have planned specifically for your first week absence. It better not be Andy Roddick. <laughs> <laughs> you can also sign up for Tribcast alerts at texastribune.org. Slash Tribcast. We'd like to thank Shiny Ribs for doing our music. On behalf of Emily and her little one, Evan. <laughs> Am I I'm not talking about it? Lexi. <laughs> oh my yeah, God. I like that. Oh my God. Emily, There's my Evan. definition of Just hell. That, Emily save, is my mother. Save that in your, now for the year end <laughs> podcast. Uh, Alexa and our producer, Todd. This is Ross. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking, baby. Texas talking, baby. Texas talking, baby.
do you need a level? Yes, I do. Hello, hello, hello. Go ahead, Alexa. Hi. Me, 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 me. Hi, Todd. Like the, the kind that you hang. This is the trip cast. 